Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. Today on the program, I'm speaking with the composer John Luther Adams about his book, Silences So Deep, Music, Solitude, Alaska. John, welcome to the program. Thank you, Andy. It's uh, it's good to be with you. Maybe we could start with uh, the title of your book, Silence is So Deep, which comes from a poem by John Haynes, who was kind of a poet laureate of, of Alaska. I'm not sure if officially or not, uh, and was a good friend of yours. Could you talk a, a bit about John and kind of what his work meant to you and why you went to a line of his poetry for the title of your memoir? Oh, I'm always turning to John's poetry for for resonance, for wisdom, for uh, reminders of what, for me, it's all about. John was old enough to be my father, but we were just dear friends and colleagues. Um, I think I was 28 when we met, but from the first moment, John treated me as as a younger colleague, uh, as a fellow artist, and maybe, maybe in some way he saw his younger self in me. I don't know, but we had, um, we had a very close friendship and working relationship for 30 some odd years. And you're right. He is, he is, uh, Alaska's great poet. I would say Alaska's great person of letters, but I, want to say that John Haynes's work, uh, especially his late work, transcends any geography and is more prophetic these days than it was when it was written. He's a major poet. I, I don't read a lot of poetry, but I hadn't heard of him. And you write about him so evocatively that I, I ordered a book of his selected poems, which should arrive at my house any day now. <laughs> It's really a singular voice in poetry. And in a sense, you know, he's kind of been a a poet's poet. 
um, a lot of a lot of people know him, but not nearly as many um, as should know his work do know his work. So you're you're in for a treat, Andy. Um, I'm 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 very excited for it. Um, you also collaborated with him. He he. You set some of his poems to music. Could you talk about what that process was like? It was incredible. Uh, you know, we met in I guess it would have been 1980, um, and we hit it off immediately. And uh, and within three or four months. John sent me from his homestead um, down on the Richardson Highway south of of Fairbanks. Um, He he sent me an envelope uh, full of poems from an extended cycle that was then in progress called Forest Without Leaves. And he asked me in, in an almost offhand way whether... I found any might find any music in them, <laughs> and you know my immediate response was absolutely. So we began um, we began a collaboration on an extended work, um, an hour long piece for chorus, vocal soloists, and a small orchestra, uh, titled "Forest Without Leaves" after his poetic cycle, and uh, we we. We worked on that side by side for for two years and uh, premiered it in in Fairbanks. I guess the it was the first performance was in 1984, and recently I revisited Forest of That Leaves because you know it's a really early piece for me, and I went back to it and I thought, well, I will approach this like. A, a, a renovation of a period house. Um, I won't do anything that would be out of place. Um, so it required me to get back inside the mind of that aspiring young composer working with this great poet and try to figure out what the kid thought he was doing. And, uh, you know, I was, I was, really pleased um, by how much of the work stood up in its original form and by how much um, even the parts that needed um, renovation, so to speak, uh, still I, I could feel connection with, with the music I'm doing, you know, 40 years later. So anyway, I overhauled Forest Without Leaves and we're hoping next year in conjunction with my 70th and John's um, well, I guess it would be his 99th, uh, but in, in, in uh, 2024, it will be his centennial. So uh, we're, we're going to premiere the new version of Forest Without Leaves and hopefully record that so uh, it'll be more widely available. But, you know, I didn't answer your question. Uh, working with John was, was amazing. Uh, it could have been intimidating, I mean, here I was, thirty, and he was uh, fifty-nine, sixty, and this you know, already this, you know, this great uh, man of letters. But uh, we we worked together side by side as as real collaborators. And John, you know, when I would hit a word um, that I just couldn't get to sing, 
Um, you know, I, I just asked John, can, can, can we find a different word or can change that phrase? And, and he'd say, sure. So, <laughs> you know, there's, there's, there's one moment in the cycle where I think his original line was, uh, and sometimes through the air, this dust is like a willow tethered to a cloud, to a clod, tethered to a clod and, you know, to earth. Um, and I just said, John, you know, I'm not sure I can have people sing Claude. Could we make it, could we make it cloud? <laughs> and to my surprise and delight, he said, sure. I mean, here I was, you know, this kid asking, asking the poet to essentially flip heaven and earth. Right. <laughs> and that's the way the poem is now published. And I got to say, I like it that way. And sometimes through the air, this dust is like a willow tethered to a cloud. That connection between earth and heaven. Early in the book, you say that you write music in part to make your listeners more fully present and more aware of kind of what they're hearing around them at any time. What was the first music that you remember doing that for you? Yeah, I would say I... I, I, I do hope that for my listeners, um, uh, the music is an invitation to be more present in the moment, in the place, wherever that may be. But first and foremost, I do this for myself. This is my form of prayer. This is, this is, my, uh, this is my own... Uh, it's as close to religion as I get. Uh, music is my spiritual practice. And... You know, I've staked my whole life on it. So um, uh, I'm looking for a kind of redemption for myself um, through through the music. And, um, and then, you know, I give it to someone else in the hope that maybe it will be useful to them. But it started early, Andy. Um, you know, I grew up as a... I came of age musically as 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 a, a rock and roll drummer, you know. I had garage bands, and um, we we got better and better, and we started writing our own songs. But before long, I grew bored with the with with what I understood as the constraints, the the conventions, the, the of of uh, songwriting, of of you know, three or four chords and the backbeats and um, through Frank Zappa, um, I discovered the music of Edgar Varese and then um, that was the open sesame to a whole wide world of music and not only um, American music and European classical music, but really uh, the the whole world of music from all the world's cultures. But there was one moment of epiphany. I remember, you know, I'd go into the record store when I was a kid. And in those days, I, you know, I spent all my money um, on uh, LPs, on albums, which I guess are um, fashionable again and not cheap. But in those days, you know, I'd go into the record store and um, and lay down a dollar seventy nine and walk out with a new album. And I would go and flip through the bins and look for 
things that looked strange. Um, and uh, one day I was flipping through a bin in a store and, and I came across this album called Morton Feldman, The Early Years. And it was this hot pink cover and it had this photograph of this grouchy looking guy sitting on the on the deck of the Staten Island Ferry in a chair with his leg crossed and a, and a cigarette dangling from his lip and his fedora cocked just so, just staring into the camera, daring you to knock his hat off. And I snapped it up. And all I knew about Morton Feldman was that he was a buddy of John Cage. Um, and I took this thing home and I put it on the turntable. And the first cut was a piece from 1950-something, 57, I think, don't hold me to it, called Peace for Four Pianos. And I thought I had died and gone to heaven. Uh, it played for seven or eight minutes. I picked, uh, when it ended, I picked up the needle, I put it back to the beginning, and I listened to that thing again and again and again. And it just, it took me to some ineffable place that um, that Pink Floyd just couldn't go. And I think it was right about then that I knew this is what I wanted to do with my life. Hmm. One of the albums that you talk about is that um, Edgar Varese record, I think Columbia put it out, uh, uh, and I actually have that LP, and it's, it's pretty wild stuff compared to, you know, most rock music going on in the mid-60s. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Frank. You know, um, <laughs> yeah, Frank would always Zappa in the early days, uh, somewhere buried in the dense liner notes of his Mothers of Invention albums, there'd always be this defiant little quote, the present day composer refuses to die, Edgar Varese. And my little rock and roll buddies and I would scratch our heads and wonder, well, who, who is this Varese guy? And one day, my my friend uh, Dick Einhorn, Richard Einhorn, who is a wonderful composer to this day, um, was in a Greenwich Village uh, record store and stumbled across the music of Edgar Varese, Volume 2. And he brought it back home and uh, in his bedroom, yet yeah, we wore the grooves out on that one. You first visited Alaska when you were in your 20s. What was your original response to that landscape? Well, uh, immediately. Uh, let's see. It was 1975, so I would have been 22. And I had grown up all up and down the eastern seaboard in, uh, you, you know, in equally homogenous suburbs from Georgia, South Carolina to New Jersey to suburban New York City. And people would talk about, you know, going home, and I didn't know what that meant. Uh, there was no place to which I felt I belonged. And, and I think I went north with a deep but inarticulate hunger to find home, to find a place to which I would be belong. And from the moment I set foot in Alaska, I knew I had found home. One of the people that you met, I think either on that first trip or shortly thereafter, was Gordon Wright, who was a, a conductor, a composer, music professor, but also an environmental activist. 
did his life and career seem like a, a possible model for you on kind of how to fuse art and activism? Absolutely. You know, I was um, I was probably too uh, arrogant to have explicitly said that, but 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 you bet. Uh, Gordon was, you know, Gordon was like my big brother. I was his kid brother. He was 17, 18 years older than me. Um, but I am sure that I saw in Gordon um, the embodiment of, 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 of all these ideals uh, to which I aspired, you know, the, the, a life in music and, um, and living in the woods in Alaska and, um, and saving the world, you know, uh, we actually thought we could. And I think from the first time we met Gordon, um, saw how I might fit into his grand plan. <laughs> And um, not long after I, I um, moved to Fairbanks, well, he was responsible for me, for me landing the, uh, the job of executive director at the Northern Alaska Environmental Center. You know, I was living in, on the Nez Perce Reservation in Idaho. This would have been 1970, I don't know, 77, 78. And my marriage, my first marriage was... Um, was coming apart at the seams, and I got a letter um, from Gordon saying, "We need a we need we need a new director for the environmental center. Um, you're the guy for the job. Come on up." And I did. Did you have a sense of what that job would entail when you agreed to take it? Well, you know, I had been an uh, active in. Um, in environmental politics for several years by that point. I'd gotten, um, I'd gotten activated when I was still living in Georgia and um, in the countryside south uh, of, of Atlanta. And I became um, captivated with, uh, with the music of birds. And from birds, I got involved uh, in the local Audubon Society. And fortunately for me, the local Audubon Society wasn't just a bunch of bird lovers. It was an activist group that was uh, trying to stop the Army Corps of Engineers from, from damming up the middle portion of the Flint River. And by the way, we succeeded. But um, it was through my activism there that I met uh, then Governor Jimmy Carter, got involved in his presidential campaign, and... Um, you know, Carter was um, was was a big proponent of the Alaska Lands Act, um, which we finally did succeed in passing in in 1980, the single largest land preservation law in history. Overnight, we doubled the size of the national park system. So, you know, I had I had been involved in the Alaska coalition even before I moved to Alaska. Um, I had visited Alaska, but I hadn't made the move yet. Um, so I kind of knew what I was getting into, um, and I was on fire with it. Uh, with a kind of of, um, of uh, almost religious zeal, and you know, at the same time, I imagined that 
in Alaska, I, I could discover this music that, uh, that I couldn't discover anyplace else. And of course, being young and immortal, um, I saw absolutely no reason why I couldn't um, do both at the same time. Um, and it took the better part of a decade to disapprise me of that notion. <laughs> and uh, when my health started to fail, fail um, and I um, almost lost the love of my life, um, I realized I had to make a choice. And um, in that moment, I, I, I decided that someone else could carry on my, 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 someone else could take my place in politics and no one else um, perhaps could make the music um, that I might discover there. So I took that leap of faith and rededicated myself uh, exclusively to my art. And I guess I've been trying to make good on that ever since. I'm really interested in the relationship between your politics and your art, because you you write in your book that, you know, you, you usually don't really enjoy um, music or, or any art that is written to serve a specific political purpose. And yet I think people often hear environmental themes in your work and a kind of, you know, I'm thinking about Become Ocean in particular has a real sense of a sort of precarity of the natural world seems to be, I mean, in, in the way that any music can be about any sort of purely instrumental music can be about anything. It seems to be about that kind of fear that, that the kind of wilderness of Alaska that has been such a part of your life may be disappearing forever. So how do you think about the relationship between your music and your, you know, politics for lack of a better word? Yeah, that's fine. Um, it's 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 not a dirty word, but um, it, it, it feels a, it feels too small to me. You know, I mean, it's 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 politics, but it's also your kind of your relationship to the natural world as a whole. Well, sure, sure, and and obviously, I am who I am, and I have these passions. And although I left politics per se, I still hold those those values, those beliefs. Even even those dreams, those dashed dreams that we had as young people in Alaska, I still cling to. They inform who I am as a human being and who I am as an artist. Um, always have and 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 will until the day I die. But um, but it did make that choice, and I I chose. I chose music, I chose art rather than politics in the belief that in its own way, music, art can matter every bit as much as politics. And I got to say, um, in the intervening decades, as things just seem to deteriorate um, more and more, I actually now believe uh, unequivocally that art matters more. In the long run, if you look at history, if you look at uh, at, at, at cultures uh, throughout human history, the the ideas that eventually define and change those cultures uh, come from creative thought. Uh, they come from art. 
from music, from from literature, and and in recent centuries, I would say from 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 the best of science as well. Um, so ours longa vita brevis, right? Um, art is long and uh, life is short. Um, I. It's it's kind of sorry all these liturgical references, but it's sort of a church state separation, right? Which I think is a sound principle of um, of, of of politics, which I, I, I wish we actually observed. Uh, and uh, obviously, the uh, in my mind, the uh, the sacred part of that is is the art, and, and and the politics is 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 something else. After saying all of this. Um, you, you, you know, you, you read the titles of my pieces or my program notes, which are getting shorter and shorter. And it's clear that the music is informed by my profound concern for, uh, for, for the, for the state of the earth and the future of humanity. I mean, we're all concerned about that now, all, all thinking people are, 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 are concerned about that first and foremost in our hearts and our minds. But my work is in art. And if the, if the music doesn't do something to you as music, if it doesn't touch you, if it doesn't move you, if it doesn't provoke you or inspire you or comfort you, or if it doesn't work as music, then all my poetic titles or program notes or interviews like this one, it's just, it's just so much blather. Uh, it, art has to be itself, first and foremost, to be of use in any way. So that for me, that's the separation um, between the art and the politics. But of course, it's not absolute because... I read the headlines. I, I see the I see the the three hundred the smoke from the three hundred thousand acre wildfire that's raging ten miles from my house right now. Um, how can that not find its way into the music? But um, but the music has has to work first and foremost as as music. It's not it's not propaganda. It's art. Mm-hmm. Do you still have friends who are full-time environmental activists? Are you still in, in touch with that world? Um, yeah, I, I do have friends in that world, but it, it now seems, um, you know, we're all older. Some people are still at it. Some people have died. You know, a lot of us were, were uh, on fire with Alaska. And then, uh, you know, we did what we could with the Lands Act and some other major victories in Alaska. And then, and then you know here came, um, <clears throat> here came Sarah Palin and all of that. Uh, so so they sort of moved on to to other things. I, I'm still in touch with that world, but my wife Cynthia is still much more directly in touch with it. I frankly have reverted to uh, my hermetic um, ways. I I, I kind of live like a monk, Andy. Yeah, um, I definitely got got that sense from your book i mean it, you mentioned walden as being a formative influence on you and and i i totally believe that you know think reading about some of the the ways that you lived uh 
alone in tiny cabins in Fairbanks for for years. I mean, it, it, it has that. If you're at all drawn to the sort of romance of the the intentionally simple uh, monk life existence, this is the book for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it just seems to be, you know, the way I'm bent. Um, I'm not proud of it. I'm not ashamed of it. But uh, part of it is just a practice. It is temperamental. Fundamentally, it's temperamental, right? Um, and that's probably why I'm an artist, not a politician. Because although I was good at, at public speaking and, you know, could could stand up and make a speech and rouse the rabble and all of that, it took a tremendous toll on me. Um, fundamentally, I'm, I'm an introvert. Um, I and... Um, so it's temperamental, it's character flaw, um, but, it's, but it's, also a, it's also just a necessity for me because the nature of the work that I'm trying to do in my music um, and uh, my own um, way of working uh, uh, is, seems to, re- I work very slowly. I'm trying to get at something um, deep, something that feels, sounds uh, elemental, that isn't involved with self-expression. I'm, I'm, I'm not interested in, in telling you a story or um, uh, um, expressing my feelings through music. For me, uh, 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 that's the last thing I want to do. I'm trying to be in touch with something older, larger, deeper, more mysterious than I can fathom. Um, and uh, uh, for me, anyway, that that takes a lot of slow, uh, slow thought and heavy lifting. Um, and, and so it's kind of a necessity, both temperamentally and practically, for me to live like a monk. <laughs> uh, every day, you know, uh, there there aren't really any holidays around here. <laughs> my, my poor lovely wife, right? Um, I mean, I know that I'm in the zone when I don't know what day of the week it is. Um, that's when I, that, that's when I realize um, that I'm where I want to be. I'm lost in the work, but it's a constant struggle to, you know, to get there. Uh, but every day my routine is, is the same. You know, my life is, um, my life is is here on this mountainside um, in my studio. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Reading you talk about your compositional process and how you think about music, um, the composer that it most reminded me of was Messian, who's not somebody that you write about as an influence on your where I think maybe you mentioned his name once or twice to say, I was trying to do not that <laughs> maybe with, I think with the, with the songbird songs, but he, he really, I mean, and he was obviously uh, a, a fervent Catholic and, and that was very important to his music. But do you feel like ultimately you're motivated by a similar feeling, a, a sense that 
music is your calling in some way that is sort of not your choice? Yeah, I do. Um, and, you know, we could get into to, to Messian's music, which uh, some of which I find um, really moving and, and, and some of which I just find, uh, I don't know, somehow over the top in a, in a sort of sentimental, sentimental, uh, almost cinematic way. Um, and you know, this isn't, this isn't the latter day revisionism. Uh, I felt that way when, when I first encountered Messian, but you're right. When I was a kid and I, and I, and I stumbled onto, uh, to the magic, uh, the mystery of bird songs, uh, I made it a point not to listen to Messian because I didn't want to be influenced, you know, with that self-consciousness of the, of the young artiste. And I've, I've always been kind of like that, um, um, which is not efficient, but I like to be primitive man discovering fire uh, for myself. Um, having said all of that, <clears throat> I feel um, some, some affinity with a composer like Messian or, or Arvo Pert. Um, you know, at the same time um, that I feel a, a, a stark difference between um, between their, uh, I don't know, what's the word? Uh, for them, you know, it would be faith. Um, and, and I have faith, too. My faith has no name. And uh, rather than, than, than one true God, um, my faith is in um, the endless um, polyphony of the world and uh, the many, many gods of no particular religion. You write a lot in your book about your interactions with uh, people of the Yupik Nation and, and other Alaskan Native tribes. Do you feel like their approach to spirituality um, that is very closely aligned with nature was a direct influence on your thoughts about kind of your place in the natural world? Absolutely. Um, Quantum physics, uh, the science of ecology and um, the life ways and beliefs of native people have all been profound influences on my own sense of, of um, who we are, who I am, and how we fit into the world. Um, the Yupik people speak of the spirit in all things. And that, for me, is a pretty good way of putting it. You know, everything in the world has, has spirit, has intelligence, has awareness has presence, has radiance. You were part of a, a chamber orchestra that brought classical music uh, to small villages and towns in Alaska, including towns that were uh, on reservations and, and were predominantly uh, Native people uh, living there. What was their reaction to your, I mean, obviously, I assume it wasn't a monolithic reaction, but what sorts of reactions did the music that you composed get in these kind of small rural Alaska towns? Yeah, that. Um, uh, let me let me uh, make a make a quick uh, observation, sort of um, um, 
geopolitical observation that is there there are almost there are like two tiny reservations in Alaska. Um, um, Alaska people have um, Alaska Native people have um, for better and for worse are, uh, corporations um, and they are uh, they, they have large tracts of lands that are um, that are deeded to the corporation's profit they're a profit making and non-profit corporation so it's a different system in Alaska um, as I say, for better and for worse than, than it is in the lower 48. But um, aside from that. Thanks for that correction. Yeah. Yeah, no problem. Um, I played um, timpani and percussion in the Arctic Chamber Orchestra for a decade. Uh, the, that orchestra was a smaller ensemble, a subset of the Fairbanks Symphony, in which I also um, uh, played, and was uh, the Arctic Chamber Orchestra was founded by my my best friend Ar- uh, by Gordon Wright, who we talked about a little earlier, and um, once or twice a year we would uh, we would go on tour, and each year we would go to a different region of of Alaska. And yeah, we play in logging camps and in, in mining camps and those kinds of things. But um, we would uh, more often than not play in in native villages, uh, usually in the school gym. And uh, we it would be a, a, a knowingly a kind of cultural exchange. We'd play our concert, and then the local. Um, traditional dance group, a theater group would perform for us. It was really a fantastic experience. And I made, I learned so much um, and and I made so many good friends on those tours. Um, I remember, what would it have been? 1981, I guess. Um, We toured the Northwest Arctic with um, a concert that included, this is typical Gordon programming. Um, it included <clears throat> um, Webern Opus 21. <laughs> you know, these, the Anton Webern Opus 21, these, these beautiful tiny little jewels, uh, these miniatures um, for chamber orchestra. I, uh, Clarinet Concerto by Norman Della Gioia, with our principal clarinetist as a soloist. A Beethoven Symphony, um, the eighth, <clears throat> which is one of my favorites. And uh, the, the premier performances of a new work from me, uh, A Northern Suite. And... That year on that tour, we had a journalist from, is there a Chicago magazine? I can't remember, but she was, she was a, a journalist writing for, for a magazine based in Chicago. She traveled with us. And after each of these performances in Ambler, Kobuk, Shungnak, uh, Kivalina, Kayana, you know, these villages um, out, out in the, the, the tundra, um, gnome, different places. Um, she would do her own kind of casual, informal exit poll. 
and, and talk to people about their impressions of the concerts. And we were all amazed and delighted um, that uh, the Northern Suite was far more uh, well-received, far more popular than the Beethoven Symphony. <laughs> um, I mean, just across the board, <clears throat> every village, and by a large margin. Uh, and towards the end of the tour, she told me this. And of course, I harbored, even then, with my youthful arrogance and, and feeling so excited about it all, um, being young and, and and traveling out in the bush and meeting all these great people and, and, and having you know, my first orchestral piece premiered out there. Um, but even then I, uh, I knew I harbored no, no illusions that, you know, my, my little piece was in any way greater than a Beethoven symphony or, 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 or even, you know, the Webern Opus 21, but it made sense because it, it, people would talk about it and they say, we hear, we hear our place. We hear the country. It, we hear the land, we hear the weather in this music. Um, and that was, that was an amazing confirmation for me, Andy. Uh, that encouraged me in a way that, that a review in a magazine or a newspaper or somewhere uh, back East just, just couldn't have done. It, 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 it resonated for people who lived there. You so premiered that, a that encouraged me. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. That's, that's quite a ringing endorsement. You premiered a lot of your pieces over the years with the Fairbanks uh, Symphony Orchestra. And I wonder what effect that had on your, on your writing. I mean, it's, it's pretty rare that a composer can write a piece of music knowing, you know, by name exactly who's going to be performing each part of that music. Did how did that shape your compositional voice? Well, it's it you know it's part of a devil's bargain that that Gordon made with me when uh, when I first moved to to Fairbanks and you know I was um, I was on the on the crusade right I was executive director of the, the, the job that he'd gotten me into right <laughs> I was running the environmental center with my with my partner in crime now my wife um, Cynthia. And, you know, that was more than a full-time job. And Gordon started nipping at my heels to, you know, you can come, play, come play in the orchestra. We need you in the orchestra. And I would just say, I can't. I, I got too much going on. We're, you know, we're, um, in addition to trying to save the world, we're living in a cabin and chopping wood and carrying water. I can't do it, Gordy. Uh, well, he just wouldn't take no for an answer. And eventually I, I acceded to his non-negotiable demand. But but it was when he, he laid out the bait and it was, look, you play in my orchestra, I'll play your music. Um, and, um, uh, you know, that made all the difference in my life because Gordon always spoke of the, the timpanist as the second conductor. I took that very seriously. And... I would not only you know study my part and learn my my timpani part, um, but I would get the score of all the pieces and uh, the scores and 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 study them and know what was going on everywhere in the orchestra. 
And through that experience, through that 10-year apprenticeship with the orchestra, I learned the medium. And I, it, it, in, there was all this music, you know, whether it was Sibelius or Tchaikovsky or, or Beethoven or, or Franck, you know, all this stuff that as the young firebrand uh, iconoclast, I had no interest in at all. And here I was studying it and learning from it. And, you know, this was, um, this was uh, an opportunity that would not have been available to me any other place. Uh, you know, you just, you just don't get that opportunity to, to uh, learn how an orchestra works from the inside um, over the course of a decade. That's just not available to to, to young composers. So in spite of myself, I learned to, uh, you know, and then I, I started, I took him up on his, on his bargain, right? I started composing things for the orchestra and we played them. And I learned, I learned the medium. I, I discovered my orchestra, you know, my, my relationship to the symphony orchestra at the expense of, of my friends and colleagues in the Fairbanks Symphony and the, and the Arctic Chamber Orchestra. And so, you know, here I am, even though, uh, you know, I, I've, I, the symphony orchestra in some way is, 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 is kind of the ultimate um, uh, temple of, uh, of a culture in which, a musical culture in which I no longer believe. Here I am writing these big orchestra pieces and, um, and, and I'm sure there are many orchestral musicians who would, um, who would disagree with this statement, um, people who've played my music, but I kind of know what I'm doing. Um, at least I understand my orchestra and, uh, and that's all because of, of, of Gordon and the, and, and the Fairbanks symphony. Yeah. One, one of the things that I've really noticed about those big pieces become ocean, become desert, other other pieces of that scale, is the more you listen to them, the more little details uh, I notice. I, f- I feel like every time I listen to those pieces, wh- which I've returned to, you know, a, a fair number of times, I always notice some little, you know, it's, it's not, it, what you notice at first are these kind of big waves of sound, but within those, there's all sorts of little articulations it was that was that something that you kind of learned through performing in in a symphony orchestra yeah i guess um and through through trying them out trying things out and Mm -hmm. um you know and 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 learning uh in alaska learning what worked in my musical world in my orchestra and what didn't and I am meticulous about detail in in my music. I want the music to be ravishingly sensuous and um, intellectually airtight. Um, I want you know all the corners to be perfectly mitered. I want the seams not to show. Um, I I. I, I take great pride in all those little details, so it makes me happy that that you notice them. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the other things that I, I mean, I, your book is very insightful about 
your composition and your relationship to music. But one of the things that we haven't talked about too much that is really delightful about the book is your descriptions of this sort of other version of Alaska that I kind of knew only very little about before reading the book, which is this sort of like bohemian, um, you know, artistic, left-wing kind of society that is completely the opposite of, like you said, Sarah Palin's Alaska. Could you kind of talk a little bit about that? I mean, and and you write that 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 side sort of lost the the culture war, the economic war um, in Alaska, and and has has sort of been replaced. And at a certain point, you left Alaska, feeling like that world didn't exist anymore. Um, yeah, well, it, you, it, does, you... it, it does. It okay. does. Yes, I'd be happy to talk about that. And um, that world <laughs> does still exist, but it's really tiny now. Or. It, mm-hmm. You know, even in those days, even in the seventies and the eighties, and, and the, you know the last decades of the of the twentieth century, we were uh, a minority. But um, but there were young people with uh, different ways of looking at things in you know in the state legislature and. Um, on borough assemblies and city councils and in, in positions of political power. Um, and we had access. Um, there was a sense back in those days of, look, we're all, we're all Alaskans. We're all in this thing together. Um, you know, if it's 40 below and somebody's broken down by the side of the road, um, you stop and help them. And they may have, uh, they may have, uh, diametrically opposite worldview, but there's that sense of well, we're Alaskans. Um, so people cut in those days. People cut one another um, a lot of slack, and there was even this kind of begrudging respect and 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 affection. Um, that really started to go away around the turn of the century, right when the climate uh, changes became dramatic um it just sort of happened overnight um and um and then you know gordon died and john haynes died and it just sort of felt as though the alaska that that had shaped me that we had all loved and shared um had had left um and you know thanks in large part to some of the good work that we did back then, um, large portions of original Alaska, of, of, of wild Alaska are still intact, although they are now threatened in ways, those places are threatened in ways that we couldn't have even imagined mm-hmm. um, by, um, by, by the change in, in, in the climate. But, yeah, it it, it it all seemed to happen sort of at once, um, but that 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 bohemian subculture um, that was my family. They were my people. Um, they were the family that with whom they were my chosen family. The people with whom I shared ties deeper than blood and. Um, I'm still every day grateful for for what we had, for what we shared, and as I said earlier, I still cling to um, to that spirit of of 
a possibility and openness and idealism. Um, but it's, it's harder and harder right now. There's a certain irony in the idea that it seems like part of what drew you to Alaska as a young person was the idea of, of solitude, but part of what you found in Alaska was, was community. Was that an irony that was apparent to you at the time? Um, somewhat, but it's become more delightfully apparent over the years. I mean, I knew uh, my, not only did we move around a lot when I was a kid, and I didn't know where home was, but, you know, family life wasn't good. Um, so I, uh, I, I, I got away from my family as quickly as I could and, got, and went as far as I could. Uh, and, yeah, I went, I went to Alaska looking for, for solitude, and I found it. And I found people who had gone there for the same reasons and out of our shared solitude came the sense of community of family mm. and that's a that's an irony that's a lesson i've learned uh again and again and again um i remember i, I there's a there's a uh, outdoor work of mine the first of this continuing series of outdoor pieces is a um is a piece called Inuk Suite for nine to 99 percussionists. It can only be performed outdoors. And it's inspired by Inuk Suite, those uh, solitary stone figures that stand out on the Arctic coastal plain that Inuit people across, uh, around the, the circumpolar Arctic, around the whole top of the world, have, have, have built for countless centuries. And those solitary figures... Um, were kind of the icons that I had in mind, the images, the metaphors, if you will, for this piece that I, I, I composed, Inuksuit. And I was working alone in my wood-burning cabin studio in, in, in the woods, and I thought I was writing a piece about solitude. And then I, we, Cynthia and I uh, drove down to Banff, and... Um, and we rehearsed and we heard the first performances of Inuksut. And I realized, oh, trick on me. This is not a piece about solitude. It's a piece about community. And it's that sense of each one of us being rooted in and, and aware of um, and responsible for our place in the world. And that's the way, that's the way these outdoor pieces work. That's the way Inuk, so it works for a listener. Each individual, there's no best seat in the house. Each individual's experience of the piece is unique, is, is sometimes radically different uh, from, from what someone else hears. And then afterwards, People stand around and they talk about what they heard and 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 saw and felt and ex and, and experienced and and out of that sense of of sh of of shared solitude emerges this uncanny sense of of community. We're all here in this place, alone together. Kind of the human condition. 
I think that's a lovely note to end on. Um, John, I, I want to thank you so much for being on New Books and Performing Arts to talk about your wonderful book, Silence is So Deep. I, I really enjoyed it so much. Um, and I think even people who have, I, I actually know for a fact, I have friends who've read the book who have no no real interest or knowledge in in contemporary music, but found the book to be a, a profoundly moving experience nonetheless. And so I want I want to thank you for writing it and for coming on the show to talk about it. Thank you. That that makes me very very happy, and it's and it's been a pleasure to chat with you. But I will also say, people should check out your music. It's it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Andy. Stay-